guys have a seat. Once more, welcome to everyone. I'm Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church, saying welcome to the Franklin campus. Pastor Eric, we love you so much. Uh, Brian Ahern, Tina, Perry, Oklahoma, we love you guys. God bless you and your work there. Uh, we love those of you in the overflow. Thank you for worshiping together with us this morning. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. This is the final uh, day in the sermon series entitled Grace, God's Riches at Christ's Expense, Grace. Grace. It's been a doctrinal series. I really tried to help us uh, just drill down deep into God's word, uh, trying to rediscover uh, what grace is really about. I hope I've reminded you well that, that grace is, is the very essence of what God is like. He, he is gracious, gracious. All the way from Genesis, he is gracious, and his plan was always to save us by his grace. The, the Ten Commandments, the Jewish law, was never supposed to be a plan of salvation. It was never supposed to save us. There's no power in law or rules to save us. The power is in grace, God's Grace. Last week we talked about salvation by grace. I still pray that, that I managed to convey that the beauty of the gospel, the gospel of grace. God accepts us long before we are acceptable. He loves us though we are unlovable because God is a God of, of grace. This morning as we begin to wrap up this series, I, I want to just remind you that, that the great work of grace is not just to take us to heaven. Understand that, 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 that the great everyday work of grace is not just to take us to heaven. It, it's to do something else inside of us. God's grace uh, also uh, works to make us gracious. We must be gracious. Of, of all people, God's people, we must be people of grace. When people walk into this house, they need to experience grace, the grace of God and the grace of, of God's people. I can't speak for you, and I never would try, but I can tell you one thing. I need a lot of grace in my life. I require a lot of grace. People who are in close relationship with me, my, my wife, my son, my family, um, the staff here at church, those who know me best understand that, that, that I require a, a lot of grace. I, I am not a perfect man. I can be a very difficult man, um, and those who love me have to show me a lot of grace. I thank God for grace, and I want us all to remember what grace is about. I will say this, I came to Woodburn Baptist Church with my family when I was a late teenager, long before I could have ever been a candidate for pastor, I came as a church member of Woodburn. And I'll just say this, and it's not to say anything bad about any other church in the world, but I experienced Woodburn Baptist Church from day one as a congregation of grace. I had really not in my life met people of grace like Sarah Sutherland and Evelyn Balance. And, and honestly, this church has, uh, has changed my life but by just living out every single day the, the good news of grace. But it's not like that everywhere. It's not always like that. There was a small town and a, a young teenage girl, uh, unmarried of course, who got pregnant. And it seemed like immediately everybody was talking about her. Everybody everywhere was talking about her. And, and she knew that. Fortunately, there was in that town a man of grace who was the pastor of the local church. And rather than talk about her, he went to see her. He went to her. 
He said that as he knocked on the door that day, he felt the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't always happen, but he felt something. He felt the Spirit, and he knew something good was going to happen, and it did. The girl opened the door, and from the very first sight of her, you could see the shame on her face, especially when the pastor comes. He just simply introduced himself to her and said, can I come in? Can I talk to you? And she let him come in her parents' house, and they sat in the living room, and he, he told her about God's grace. He told her about the God who accepts us though we are unacceptable and loves us though we are unlovable. He told her about the God who would forgive her sins and forget her sins, casting them as far as the east is from the west. He told her about the God who gives everybody a fresh start. And that was good news, good news for her. And so with tears and joy, she knelt right there by her daddy's couch and she prayed and asked Jesus into her heart to be her Lord and Savior. And God did an amazing work in her life that day. He saved her. He forgave her for her sins. He put her sin away and and it was beautiful. When the pastor left, that was a new woman, a, a, a new girl, a new creation in Christ. It was beautiful. So no surprise, next Sunday she was in church. She was in church. And the Sunday after that, in church. And week after that, and week after that, and the week after that, she was in church. And then the week after that, she was gone. She she didn't come back to church. And the pastor missed her the week after that. She wasn't there either. So he went back to her house, and he just said, I I just wanted to come check on you. You were were there solid. uh, And then I haven't seen you for a few weeks. I, I just wonder, is there anything keeping you from coming back to church? And she just looked at him and said, Preacher, I can't. I can't come back there. She said, when I walk in that church, I feel just as dirty and just as nasty as I ever felt in my life. I feel more shame at church than anywhere else. I just can't come back. Pastor said, sweetie, I explained to you that that Jesus loves you and that he is gracious and that he forgives your sin and that he forgets your sin. And she said, I know that Jesus forgives and forgets. I know that Jesus forgives and forgets. But those people down there at your church, they don't forgive and they don't forget. Remember that when Jesus walked on earth, it was really strange how people that were nothing like him liked him. Really interesting. It's interesting that the most religious people were the ones that Jesus had to confront. It was the Pharisees, the the religious people who had no grace. Those are the people that Jesus had to confront. Those are the ones that Jesus called hypocrites. Those are the ones that Jesus reserved his his strongest words for. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said that that, that even though God accepts people by grace, that, that those religious people, they lay religious burdens on people and they crush people. That's what Jesus says. You crush people with your religious demands. You crush people. It would be wonderful if Jesus had somehow won that argument with the Pharisees long ago and and, and that it was no longer an issue. But if you've been in churches very long at all, 
you understand that there are still Pharisees. For some reason, for some reason, churches still are, are, are sort of sometimes taken over by people who really are not walking in grace and not showing any grace. We're just talking about people who, who tell people that God saves by grace, but then once they get them in, they start piling on the burdens. Paul has some words for those people in Colossians chapter 2. He's talking to the church here, and he's talking to the church that's being attacked, this church that is in real danger from people inside. It's not the outsiders, it's the insiders that are causing problems. And it's not the non-Christians, it's the Christians causing problems. Understand that. The, the enemies that Paul talks about here, these are Christians. These are people in the body who no longer seem to understand what grace is. So let's, let's see what God's word says. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. This is the word of God. And now just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Underline that verse. Just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots, underline that word, grow down into him and let your lives be built on, underline built, let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong. It will be established in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. That's good. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler with authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. we got to stop there. That is so good. Do you know what that says? The record of all of your sins, all of the charges against you, anything that anybody could ever say about you that would condemn you, but that would be true. You understand? All of the true, horrible things that could ever be said about you, all of your sins, the record of that has gone somewhere. Where is it? It's nailed to the cross with Jesus. Now understand, Jesus was crucified something like, what, 2,000 years ago, something like that? And you weren't born yet? So what that means is you were forgiven in advance, did you get that? You've been forgiven in advance before you were born, but before you spoke a word, you understand God's forgiveness was already extended toward you. That's grace. Nothing to do to deserve it. It's just what God does. And your sins were forgiven in advance. That's not even the sermon. Verse 15. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. 
Verse 16, get this. So don't let anyone condemn you. Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Take your seat. Let's preach a while. That is so good. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 6. Let's talk about what happened when you got saved. Go back to that because that's where, understand, all the magic happened. That's what you have to understand. What happened when you got saved? You need to remember this. You need to know this so that you don't get trapped or, or kidnapped later by something that's not true. Verse 6, and now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus, just as you accepted Christ, understand, when you got saved and you became a Christian, this happened because you accepted Christ. You received Christ. You did not receive church membership. That's not what saves a person. You did not receive a long list of rules, and if you follow those rules, then you can maybe one day be saved. You didn't receive a set of rules. It doesn't say you received the Ten Commandments. It didn't say that at all. Do you understand? You received Christ. You accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord. And now, just as you have received Christ, you must now continue to follow him. You can never let anything or anybody take you away from Christ. You became a Christian by receiving Christ. Christ is the only thing that matters. Now let's go on. Read the words he says. Let your roots grow down into him. Be rooted in him. And that's a very interesting way of speaking about our lives. Our lives are to be rooted in Christ. That means that, that, that my life, that, that Jamal's life, that, that our lives somehow come out of the soil that is Christ. Like a tree comes out of the soil that it's planted in. And our lives put down roots deep. Now the, the root part of a tree is the part you can't see. It, it's It's invisible. You don't see roots. You you can't really detect roots. It's just that you know that they're there because the tree stands strong. The reason that so many Christians live lives without strength is that they do not let roots go down deep into Christ. Now, some people let the roots go down very deep in the church. You end up with very, very religious people who are as far away from Christ as any lost person out there because they're only putting their roots down deep in church. 
You do not earn religious points by coming to church all the time. It doesn't make you more of a Christian. Do you understand? Our roots go down deep in the person of Christ, in the grace of Christ. Be rooted in him and let your lives be, I'm in verse 7 now, let your lives be, say the word, built built on him. Now again, Paul's just totally switched the metaphor for us. We're talking about roots, and now he's talking about a building. And basically what he's saying is your life, my life, is always under construction. I am still under construction. I am not a finished product. We can all be thankful for that, and we can all be thankful for the fact that none of us is a finished product. I'm still being built, and I'm being built according to the blueprint of Christ. I'm not being built according to the blueprint of of my Christian friends or the blueprint of, of other pastors or the blueprint of people who have very strong opinions around me. There's one blueprint that determines what I become, what I'm being built into, and that is the blueprint of Christ. Don't follow anybody else's plan for your life. You find Christ's plan for your life. Nobody else knows what's been placed inside of you. Nobody else knows what you're intended to be. You let your life be built upon Christ, built upon him. Then your faith will grow strong. The word is be established. It's the idea of something absolutely immovable, something permanent. My goodness, if you spend any time in church, as as I've spent a lot of time in church, I see people come in and they sort of spring into life for a while, that they seem to burst into a sort of Christian flame, and then they just fizzle. They're just gone. You see people come in and they get really involved and really, really excited and very faithful in all the ways that, that we expect church people to be faithful, and then they're just gone. They just fizzle. I would say that the people hearing my voice right now in this sermon, there are a number of you that, that are sort of used to be Christians. You, you used to be something really exciting. You, you used to be a deacon or you used to be a Sunday school teacher or, or you used to sing in the choir. You used to do this. You used to do that. You used to volunteer at the Salvation Army. You used to do All of these things, but now there's nothing to show for your Christian faith. You're warming a a pew. The, The point is when your life is rooted, being built upon, being established upon Christ, there's something very immovable, very unshakable, something that is not going to fizzle and blow away about your faith. You receive Christ, Paul says, and so you must continue to follow him. Whatever goes wrong in my Christian life or your Christian life, it boils down to this right here. You stop following the Christ that you received when you were saved. You must never stop walking after him. And that's the word that Paul uses. You must walk in him. To say that the Christian life is walking, it has in mind that idea of forward motion. You're going somewhere. There's a destination for it. There's a goal for your life, your Christian life. Look forward about one page, chapter 3, verse 10. This is the goal of your Christian life. Chapter 3, verse 10, the book of Colossians. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. 
That's the goal of your life, the goal of your Christian life. It's the reason you're alive, to know your creator and become like him. So your Christian life and my Christian life, you could say it's a walk. It's a journey moving forward. And in that journey, that forward motion is leading me closer to my creator, closer to God. And in the process, I'm actually becoming more like him. Now that's what the Christian life is. That's what the life of grace is about. Now, of course, in my becoming like Christ, that means I'm becoming less and less like the person that I used to be, like the person that I would be apart from Christ. So you understand, in that process of being being made more like Christ, my sin is becoming further and further away from me. It has less of a hold on me. Remember, sin is what we're being saved from. So even as we talk about grace and we're talking about the Christian life, we're still talking about our necessity to, to leave sin, to repent of our sin, and to walk away from our sin. We're not going to suddenly, now that we've been saved from sin, turn around and wallow in it. It's what we're being saved from. It's what grace does for us. It sets us free. It releases us from the chains of all that. It's called grace. But there's a danger, and this is the danger that is happening at the church at a place called Colossa. It's the letter, the church to whom this letter is addressed. And Paul says in verse 8, don't let anyone capture you. Don't let anybody capture you. That's the translation there. The Greek word that Paul uses there is like something off the animal planet channel. It's a word that has to do with, with don't let anybody make you their prey. The the literal word means to take in your mouth and carry off like like prey. It's like when your cat catches a mouse and you see that cat running across the yard with that mouse in, in, in its jaws. You see, that's the picture. That's what's happening in the church. The people are being carried off like a predator carries off prey. There are predators in this church. And Paul sees them as perhaps the greatest danger to the gospel. The greatest danger to the gospel. But they're inside. We often think that the greatest danger to our church would be people out there, people way outside of Christ who would hate us and come up against us. But Paul doesn't say much about those folks other than to love them and share the gospel with them. Instead, the real danger is coming from people inside. And the people inside that are so dangerous are the people who will not live by grace. Understand that. These are the people who call themselves Christians. These are the people who say they've been saved by grace, but now that they say they've been saved by grace, they want to start adding things to the picture. Now, these are Jewish Christians for the most part, and so when they come into a church, they are happy that everybody's a Christian saved by grace, but then they want to see everybody now become like them. They want everybody to start living like Jews. And they honestly believe that they're helping people. Do you see that? They really believe that they're right. They really believe that in order to be close to God, you do need to be saved by Jesus' grace. But then you also need to eat and dress and worship like a Jew. That's not the gospel, Paul says. That's not the gospel. If being a Jew could save people, then all the Jews would already be saved. That's not what saves a person. 
Do you understand? These are people who are sharing a gospel, but they're now no longer sharing Christ. They're sharing something that's very dangerous, something that's very false. And what makes it so? What makes it not the gospel? What makes it so false? What makes it so dangerous? It's really, really simple. What they preach comes from human thinking, Paul says. It comes from human thinking. It comes from human tradition. You understand? These folks who are predators, literally, the ones who are crushing new Christians with with religious burdens, all they're actually trying to do is to squeeze the whole church into their box. They want everybody to think like them. They want everybody to eat like them. They want everybody to follow their rules. And Paul says, you can't let those people win. You can't let the church operate in such a way where all the Pharisees win. You can't preach the gospel in such a way that once people come in and are saved by grace, then you begin to crush them with religious burdens. You can't do that, Paul says. You can't let that happen. You think it still happens? You think in a church like ours, there is that same danger? I want to think not, but I still think it's wise for us to attend to what Scripture says and begin to notice the warning signs. You don't want to be one of these people on either side. You don't want to be one of those people who out of one side of your mouth, you can talk about the, the grace that saves us, and out of the other side of your mouth, you begin to push rules on people that absolutely do nothing but increase the joy-killing heaviness of being sinners. Have you ever been in that church? There's just this incredible heaviness. There's this this incredible lack of joy and lack of gratitude. There is instead just the dead weight of religious obligation, the the dead weight of having to follow other people's rules, having to please other people, always having to be called in to answer for every little thing you've done. It's that dead weight of guilt that the church promises on the one hand to remove by God's grace, and on the other hand, we just pile it on the dead weight of guilt. We don't mean to do it, but we do it. We do it because we know the danger of sin. We know the destruction of sin. We know that's what we're being saved from, and we don't want to go back to that. And we want to save other people all of the heartache of sin. Honestly, our hearts may be in the right place, but when we stop preaching grace, we're not preaching the gospel anymore. If grace does not characterize our lives, then we're not becoming more like our creator. He is a God of grace. Some of us just get obsessive, uh, uh, obsessive about everything. We want to make everything a moral issue. And on the one hand, that sounds like a good thing, to always be thinking about whether what I'm doing is a sin or not. I'm not saying not to pursue holiness and to pursue purity for yourself, but there's an obsessive nature that kicks in when we begin to make everything a sin or not a sin. And giving the choice, we'll make most everything a sin. We begin to preach sin 
We begin to make into sin things that, that, that the Bible doesn't even forbid. Do you understand? We don't get to do that. We don't get to add to Scripture. We don't get to make rules. Because every time we make the rules, what we're now preaching is coming from human tradition. We don't always know the difference between our preferences and what Christ allows and forbids. We don't get to push those things on other people. Now, I'm not saying we don't preach the Bible. We do. When the Bible has a clear word, we preach a clear word. But we don't get to preach as if it is the Bible all of the things that we just like and don't like. We don't get to do that in the church. We don't get to do that to people. When you start doing that, you're crushing people. We're crushing people. Y'all know, I, I grew up Baptist, baby, and I am still Baptist all the way to my Baptist bones. I am so Baptist. And that means I still have voices in the back of my head that they make me feel guilty when honestly I'm not doing anything wrong. You know, you begin feeling guilty for things that aren't even wrong just because you remember that way back in the past, you know, Miss Minnie didn't want anybody to chew gum in church. So if you find yourself in church with gum, all of a sudden you feel like you're like an inch from hell because you're chewing gum. You know, I, I grew up like that. Miss Minnie used to get the offering plate and walk around the church. And if you had gum, she'd make you spit it out in the plate. Gross. Wow. Seriously? Bubblegum is sin? Who gets to say that? Nobody. No matter how much you don't like gum. Didn't you understand? You're just adding religious burdens on people. Wow. I have always loved to dance, but I can't dance. I'm a horrible dancer. I'm so bad. It's because I was never allowed to dance. I was taught that a dancing foot and a praying knee can't live together on the same leg. That's not a joke. A dancing foot and a praying knee can't go together on the same leg. So I always felt that dancing was a sin, that dancing was wrong. I will never forget the first time that, that I got with a group of Christian friends, we're Christian friends, and we felt like we were doing something really wrong. But you know what we did? We took a big old jam box. Y'all know what those are? You're old enough. A, 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 it's, a, it's a gigantic iPod, but it's like this big. <laughs> we took a jam box up to the top of the parking structure at Western. You got to hide to do this. We took a jam box to the top, the top floor of the parking structure at Western, and we played music, and we danced. Dancing feet and praying knees on the same legs. You know what? It was just fun. It was just fun. There was no sin in that. It was just fun. Now, I know that my Sunday school teachers growing up would probably all think that I was doing something horrible. God bless them. It was just fun. Just fun. And the Bible does not forbid it. So you can't forbid it either. It was just fun. We weren't dirty dancing. We were ugly dancing. We were dancing badly but it was just fun. Sometimes things are just fun. 
Sometimes things are permissible. Even if you don't like it, it's permissible. And you really don't get to, to begin laying burdens on people as if you are the Lord, as, you are the, as if you are the one who gets to set the rules. You're not. None of us is. Because we're all saved by grace. We received Christ. We didn't receive you. We received Christ. We didn't receive your preferences. We didn't even receive all of your tradition. We didn't receive all of the things that you heard when you were growing up. I really try as a pastor not to do to our young people what was done to me. I try not to do that. God bless all of the people who taught me to love the Lord. But at the same time, the tendency is to push your tradition along with that. And you just can't do that. You can't elevate your tradition to the same level as Christ's truth. You've got to know the difference. You've got to know the difference. Because we're people of grace, not rules. So how do we protect our church? How do we protect one another? How do we continue to, to, to walk away from sin and be very, very serious about sin while at the same time being very, very serious about grace? How do we do that? How is it that we as Christians can, can share grace with, with one another? How is it that that is even possible? I think first off, you've got to know how you were saved you got to know how you received Christ, and you got to remember that. you got to remember that, that it is by grace that we are saved through faith, and it has nothing to do with ourselves. It's, it's grace. And then you let your roots go down deep into that, and you establish your life upon that, upon Christ and his grace. problem with a lot of us is that we are kind of approval addicts. Church is a great place for, for people like me and maybe people like some of you. I like to please people. Honestly, one of the reasons that I've probably stayed out of trouble is that I have always been a rule follower. And so when the people at church tell me what the rules are, I follow those. I, I want approval. I want other people to think of me as a good Christian. I want other people to look at me and, and see something of Christ. And often I confuse that and I think that that has to do with me again, with my ability to follow the rules that everybody gives me. Do you understand? It's, it's a kind of addiction. I want people to approve of me. Understand that's a kind of sin I'm talking about my sin, not yours, but it's a kind of sin in me. Because when I make your approval the, the most important thing to me, I'm putting you in the place of God. Are you listening? I, I'm letting you take over the place of God. When, when pleasing you and getting your approval becomes more important than, than what Christ is doing in my life, then, then I'm putting you in his place. And, and that's sin for me. It's sin for you. Notice what Paul says here in the most beautiful way several times here from verse 16 on. Verse 16, don't let anyone condemn you. Don't let anyone condemn you. Now, what's condemnation? Condemnation is what people do when they, when they heap guilt upon you. Now, understand, as a Christian, there, there are two very important words to know. 
and write these down. The first word is conviction. And conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. And in my life as a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is convict me of my sin. Now, it's that conviction of sin that brought me to Christ in the very first place. But it's also that conviction of sin that continues to bring me back to Christ every single day. When I sin... When I'm truly guilty of sin, the Holy Spirit will convict me. He will show me in my heart. And it's very specific. The Holy Spirit will always speak to me, and he'll tell me names, dates, and places. You understand? He always points out my sin to me, not so that I will be condemned and guilty, but so that I can confess and be set free, so that I can be forgiven. The Holy Spirit convicts me. But there's a whole different spiritual operation, and that's called condemnation. And condemnation is the one thing that a Christian cannot accept. Go back to the book of Romans chapter 8. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Underline this. Put Christmas lights around it in your Bible. Know this verse. Paul, speaking in Romans, he just finished that great Romans 7 about the sin in his life and what a wretched man as he is. The, the things that he always wants to do are the things he never does, and on and on he goes until he gets to chapter 8, verse 1, and then he says, Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that, <clears throat> that leads to death. There is no condemnation. No condemnation. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's like I said, when the Holy Spirit convicts, it's a very specific action in my heart. I know exactly what I've done wrong, and I know what I need to confess, and I receive forgiveness for that. Thank the Lord for the Holy Spirit's conviction. Condemnation is different. Condemnation is just this dark cloud it's this heavy weight that just begins to settle over your head and presses down on you. Condemnation is not specific. Condemnation isn't conviction for a particular sin. Condemnation isn't this sense that, oh my goodness, I've done something wrong. Condemnation is this overwhelming feeling that I haven't done something wrong, I, I am something wrong. It's nonspecific. It's, it's, it's this dead weight of guilt, this dead weight of shame. And Paul says that the Christian life has nothing to do with that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no longer this horrible, heavy sense of unworthiness, even though I'm not worthy. You understand? I'm not worthy. I no longer live with this heavy, dark cloud of, un of unworthiness. Even though I'm still a sinner, I'm not living under this heavy, dark cloud of condemnation and guilt. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So back to Colossians, Paul says, don't let anybody condemn you for stupid stuff. That's what he says, basically. Don't let them condemn you for stuff that's not a sin. Don't let them make stuff up and pull it over on you. Don't let them condemn you for eating or drinking things that they don't think Jews should eat and drink. Don't let them condemn you for the day you worship or, or for the way you don't worship days that they think are holy. Don't let them do that to you. Don't accept the condemnation from the devil. Don't accept it from anybody, even if it's somebody in church with you. Let nobody condemn you. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Did you understand? 
People come into this church. They need grace. They are expecting grace because isn't that what we talk about? If we get them to come in by grace, let's don't turn back around and start crushing them with our religious rules and burdens. As the story goes, the prodigal son was in the pig pen and he started thinking about what it's like back home. Remember? So he decided to go back home to his daddy. He started rehearsing his speech. Remember his speech? He worked on it all the way home. And it went something like this. Father, I am not worthy to be called your son. That was his speech. Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He practices that all the way home, and then he gets up the driveway, and his father sees him while he's still a long way off. And, and as he's walking up the sidewalk to the house, his father comes and throws his arms around him, and, and the son tries to say his speech. He says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But what does a father do? He doesn't even listen to that. He just says, somebody come bring a robe and put that robe on my son. The son knows he's not worthy to be called son. But the father calls him son. And if the father calls him son, then that's the only thing that matters. You understand? It's the only thing that matters. If God accepts you by his grace, that's the only thing that matters. Some people may not like you. Some people may not approve of you. Some people will condemn you if you let them. Don't let them. God says you're forgiven. God says that he takes the entire record of everything that could be said to condemn you, and he's already nailed that to the cross of Christ. It's gone. You may feel unworthy. It's sort of beside the point. Grace says that you belong to him. You belong to Christ. Nothing else matters. Pray with me. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we know what it is to be slaves to sin. We know what it is not to be free. We know what it is to live with that dead weight of guilt every day. We know what that is. But Lord, I pray that when we come together and talk about what you have done for us through Christ, I pray, Lord, that that dead weight is lifted. I pray that the chains will be broken and gone. Lord, I pray that every single person in this house, no matter what they have done, no matter who they have done it to, no matter, Lord, no matter what stories can be told, I pray, Lord, that they get this really strong, strong sense down deep that all of that has been nailed to the cross of Christ. It's all been forgiven, Lord, forgiven in advance. So, Lord Jesus, let us walk in that forgiveness. Let us 
walk in that grace and let us freely, freely extend that grace to everybody else. Oh Lord, we hate sin. We despise sin. We've seen what it's done to our lives. We see what it does in the lives of others around us, Lord. But help us to understand that rules and more rules have no power to set people free from sin. Only grace does that. Only grace. So, Lord, let us push our own rules to the back. Let us hold high your word and what it teaches us about righteousness. Let us hold high your word and what it teaches us about forgiveness. Let us hold up Christ high so that the whole world will learn the wonders of his grace. Lord, I pray that this church, that all of us, Lord, will be people of grace. I pray, Lord, that we will be able to accept people even though they're unacceptable, that we will love people even though they are unlovable. I pray, Lord, that we will show other people the very same grace that we have received in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.